Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan read the paper on actually Monday, October 28th, 2019. We missed a day. Well, we're a day late. But uh, it will show up at the same time, so don't worry about it. It all comes out in the wash. Uh, this makes for a busy Monday evening for us. Because we had a busy weekend. That's that's why things got delayed. Busy weekend, uh, headlined by a Sunday afternoon opening at Classic Stage Company of Macbeth. By William Shakespeare. By William Shakespeare. By Bill Shakespeare. Exactly right. Although I will say that the uh, program, the new virtual program at Classic Stage, hopefully points out that this is a big year for Macbeth in various uh, media, that there is a version of Macbeth by Verdi, an opera that's playing at the Metropolitan. We saw a few weeks ago, and as pointed out there, Scotland, PA, a musical based on Macbeth. And here we have the basic source material, the Shakespeare play itself, Macbeth, which I had never seen, honestly. Have you seen Macbeth before, Tamsin? Not only have I seen Macbeth before, I remember when I saw it. The first time I saw it was actually at Arena Stage. In Washington. In Washington. In the 70s, yeah. and uh, I think my mother must have bought a uh, subscription uh, for um, her and my father to go to plays at the Arena Stage downtown Washington, and she didn't want to go. Oh, so she sent you. <laughs> and so I went with yeah. my dad to see well, Macbeth. Well, there have been many Macbeths, obviously, and John Doyle, the artistic director at Classic Stage, uh, is fond of saying that he's done Macbeth, directed Macbeth many times. Um and this is a Macbeth that he has sort of pared down to the bone. It is a total of an hour and 40 minutes in length, no intermission. And uh, we got the opportunity afterwards at the opening to speak to others who have seen many Macbeths. And they all confirmed that it was really pared down. Um, and uh, people uh, liked it. They liked it. They thought it was impactful. They thought it was striking. Uh, and, of course, classic stage has the advantage of being in a 200-person theater. So it tends to make a very strong impression. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I thought it was fine. Okay. <laughs> you well, know, the, the the truth is, Yes. and uh, I, I do think I've seen it at least one other time, it's not like I really know it that well. Right. So I don't feel I'm the greatest critic. Right. I did follow it, mm -hmm. so that's something. Right. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and there were some... Alterations. Oh. Uh, really? Uh, characters okay. played a variety of parts. Oh, there is that. There is and that. And you had to be sometimes on your toes. Astute. And because yes. there also were switches, there, you know, there was some gender bending. Yes. Uh, so um, that, to a neophyte like me, presented a few challenges. Yes. Yeah, so we should mention it starred Corey Stoll, uh, who is to us most famous in House of Cards. Uh, Mary Beth Peel, who's been an actress, has had many, many roles we've seen, and she plays a very prominent set of roles in this Macbeth. Uh, Nadia Bowers, who was actually married to Corey Stoll in real life, was Lady Macbeth, fittingly enough. Uh, yeah, I, I thought it was, uh, was excellent. I mean, it is, uh, Macbeth, so it, it's hard to say, gee, that's a catchy, who is this William Shakespeare? That, that plays pretty good. The play's not pretty good. I mean... It is Macbeth. It's a towering achievement. And uh, again, uh, what is it about? It's about power more than anything. It's about what power does to a person when they try to strive mightily to attain it, perhaps overstep their bounds, perhaps do terrible acts, all for the purpose of me, 
attaining power and uh, what happens to the conscience of a good man when he takes that route. Uh, and it's explored in, um, in very uh, graphic, haunting terms. Um, we should also mention, got an excellent review in the New York Times. It is right. just released this morning. It is a so-called critic's pick, which is not an easy thing to earn. And so bottom line, if uh, I, I think you should see it. I, I recommend it to people. Uh, again, it's pared down to the bone. Uh, it's not hours and hours. And um, I think it's clearly worth seeing. Agreed? Agreed. 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 Okay. I mean, look, it's not, it's not the music man. But uh, it's, it's pretty serious business and sometimes even a little bloody, I think it's fair to say. Well, it was very violent. But lots of Shakespeare is pretty violent. Right. I guess he was on to that. The crowds like that. Well, you know, when I was watching it, I'm saying to myself, in a sense, he's, he, he took a historical event or set of events and he enlarged on it. And he's telling the story of what happened at this particular point in English history. And he's making a little bit more of it than he otherwise would. But he clearly is sort of the guardrails or English history itself. And he's bringing the history to life to the English people at that time. And uh, obviously the prose is wonderful. And uh, it's not poetic. And uh, very striking terms. Oh, I don't see it as history. No? I see it as uh, examinations of uh, well, think, man's psyche. I, well, I think and, he's using history to do that. I, yeah. I, yeah, but I mean, he's in a sense, it, well, it clearly relates to... Uh, to uh, real events. It takes place in the time just following Mary, Queen of Scots, when her uh, her sons, her lineage, or uh, he's the guy who uh, unites English and Scottish together. All right, don't... don't all right, let me go into Don't go all historical. All right, we won't go and historical. Then, and then after the, uh, after the play, yeah. there was a party, That's like right. an opening party. Right, and we had... And uh, so we had fun, and we yeah. were spotting various... Um, you know, Celebs. celebrities, right. this, that, and the other. And the funny thing is that uh, next to us was an older woman, and everybody kept saying, she's somebody. Yes. And we watched uh, even young people come up and literally genuflect right. in front of her. Right. And uh, so finally it turned out uh, that uh, it was the actress Lynn Cohen. Who I never heard of before. Who's famous for being Magna. Magda and Sex in the City. Yes. Yes. Great. Um, so <laughs> that just shows you that's just there, a little are, vignette that shows you just how out of it we are. Ah, that doesn't mean we're out of it. There were a lot, a lot of bigger celebs at that uh, at that event. Uh, Victoria Clark was there, and others who, frankly, were at the classic stage gala just a few days before. And that was a wonderful event. Uh, she sang, and and some other notables sang, and and that was fantastic. Classic stage is at high tide right now, so I get your tickets while you still can. Uh, we also had uh, the opportunity last week to go to a very, very nice meal. Uh, you know, a, what we should call it, an adult yeah, restaurant, a serious you're, restaurant. You're, you're couching this in such funny terms. Why? We had the opportunity. We went out to dinner. We went out to dinner. But yeah. th we go out to dinner all the time. But this, we're going to talk about this. This is a special place. We went to Estiatori. Estiatorio Milos. Milos, Milos, yes. Okay. I it's was giving Greek the Greek restaurant. impression. It's a Greek restaurant near city center. It's on Fifty uh, Fifth Street between Sixth uh, and Seventh, I believe, and it is uh, well known. It's kind of an interesting thing. I mean, it's no, it, 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 it's, don't go into it, Daniel. We told the whole story yeah. in a previous podcast. All right. It's just an excellent okay. restaurant. It's it's the guy it's expensive, but it's it. simple at the same time. Okay. And, and uh, did you want to tell tell about the people that we met there or not? Well, we had a great time. We had a great meal. Yes. And as usual, one of the things I like about this place is it's a pretty fancy place. All the men are wearing suits. Really? Yes. So we're not oftenly, often 
uh, in that kind it's of a crowd. It's an adult restaurant, okay? yes. And yet, they make you feel perfectly comfortable. Yes. Uh, and uh, food is very simple, I would say, but just exquisite. Fabulous seafood. Flown uh, in yeah. for, the, for the event. Totally grilled Greek fish seafood right. restaurant. And seated um, next to us is this couple uh, that's seated in the middle of our meal. And, shall I say an older couple? Right. And, and the woman who's seated next to you. Uh, you know, uh, you had occasion to talk, or they they ordered, and the waiter arrived. I didn't have occasion. All right, to talk let to me you. describe the situation. No, they, 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 <laughs> did you want to describe it? It's my story. Go ahead, tell the story. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we're sitting there, and uh, the waiter brings over for these people an enormous grilled lobster right. with an enormous pile of Greek fries. And uh, the two older people are there, were wide-eyed, and so I just lean over and say, "Well, that is spectacular." <laughs> and uh, I don't know if that reassured them or upset them. But later, when we're getting ready to leave, they strike up a conversation with us, and um, it turns out they had just gotten off the plane from San Francisco, and uh, they had pretty much rushed over here for dinner, and they were delightful. And yes. they said, do you come here every day, all the time? Uh, and we said, no, we come here once a year. It's our anniversary. And they said, how many years? We said, 37. And they said, we can beat that. We've been married 57. Right. So that's right. So they were uh, 91. 91. And uh, I was chatting up the guy. We were chatting up his wife. And uh, he's a cantor. Uh, and uh, he had many years of service at a congregation in San Francisco where he assured me there's a very large Jewish community, uh, and then on cruise ships following that. And uh, I said to him, you know, like Orthodox, and he looked at me, we're looking at the lobster, and the answer is no, not Orthodox <laughs> reform. But uh, it took a lot of gumption for these people to fly 91 years old, to fly to a city they don't spend much time in, and head straight to the restaurant and order this big pile of food, uh, right before they visited their daughter, uh, who lives in uh, the Dorado on 80th Street in Central Park El West. Dorado. Yeah, so yeah they're well, they're, they're in town. Their granddaughter is running the marathon. So yes, they're right. in town for, for another week. week or so. Yeah. And, uh, well, anyway, they were terrific. And they then, were delightful. And then to his surprise, of course, as things go in situations like that, he started using a few Yiddish expressions with me. And, uh, and he kept turning sideways at Tams and sort of translating and Tamsin put the gabash on that. When on the way out, she said to him, Lashanatova, a little bit late. A little, no, it was close enough with Happy Holiday. And uh, he was, oh, his eyes were wide. He was grinning ear to ear. You know, he was just, you know, if Shiksa had landed that point and he nodded in appreciation. So there you go. So, anyways, a lot of fun. A lot of fun yeah. seeing those people. Yeah. All right. So you had something on the Dutch Golden Age, which is something I can't say I've given a lot of thought to. Uh, no, well, I give thought to it all the time. Is that true? Yes. Oh, God. Because, uh, you know, the life Rembrandt, you lead. Vermeer, that's, Franz Hals. That's the Dutch Golden Age? Yeah. All right, yeah. fine. All those guys. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, anyway, uh, an article in the New York Times, the Sunday um, Arts and Leisure section, starts out announcing Elizabeth Sampson an 18th century freeborn black woman made millions as a coffee planter and exporter using slave labor in the Dutch colony of Suriname. 
she was one of the wealthiest women in the era of the era, but few people have ever heard her story. And that just flabbergasted me mm-hmm. because I had not heard of her either. Um, and, you know, uh, I do read about the Golden Age. And so uh, what uh, the rest of the article is about is or is an exhibition in the Hermitage Museum that has decided not to use the phrase Golden Age anymore to refer to uh, Dutch painting or life at this time because they feel it leaves out a lot of stories and a lot of well, people. Well, what's her story? Is, is her, her story is, well, that's her story. That's it? Okay. Uh, and uh, she's going to be now included uh, in a group of paintings that houses portraits, uh, the portrait gallery of the Golden Age. She's going to be added to that. I see. Um, to be included. And, you know, there are other portraits being crafted kind of after the fact. Um, uh, 21st century people are posing as black uh, figures. Oh, really? From... To recreate the situation? Well, just to, you know, to be on display. Um, wow. And to, uh, you know, to fill in this story. It's part of, uh, you know, a whole... It's not like they're forgeries, say. No, pretending. but it's, I these think, are old paintings. I think we created, but the they're right trying yes. to give you know a picture right. of you know a more diverse, a more a fuller picture mm-hmm. of what life was like uh, okay. in uh, you know Amsterdam in the Netherlands at that time, and uh, you know it. Uh, not everything was lovely. Not everything was perfect. It certainly was because of all that shipping. Um, a much more diverse culture. And so that's been kind of ignored. Now, not everybody is going for this, all right? The Rijksmuseum will continue to use uh, the term golden age. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, don't be worried about that. Anyway, pretty interesting article about uh, what's going on in Amsterdam. And well, you know, in the Netherlands in general, kind of Mm -hmm. re-examining that whole period and the various people in it and what were their roles okay all right so speaking of uh continuing to use the same phrase the world series is going on we're sticking with that and uh i'm not going to belabor the world series particularly since uh, look it's an interesting series but by the time people hear this it'll be over um and uh you know it's anybody's series even now three to two you don't really feel that do you yeah i do no, you I do. F- you feel I do. I tell you, you right do? now, there's a path for Washington right. to win. If Washington wins Game Six, six which I think they are likely to do, because Strasburg should outpitch Verlander, in my view. If uh, basically Scherzer wakes up uh, healthy for Game Seven, Washington's the favorite. Okay, that's that's the path. I hear the footsteps. What does that mean? Armand is running out to put his money on Houston oh, God. as right. we speak. Here, so the only thing I heard it okay, from you. Let me come back to what I wanted to observe about this series. Uh, one of the, the key things if you're the general manager of a baseball team is you, of course, have to acquire players and you have to have a budget for that. And there's a tremendous variety in how much the teams spend. There is a luxury tax at a figure somewhat above $200 million. And people want to avoid that like the play. Companies, uh, you know, the, the teams don't want to have to pay that luxury tax. But there are teams also that are quite luxury the opposite. Luxury tax on what? If you spend more than the, than the limit, let's call it $200 million, the league taxes you for every additional dollar you spend. It might oh, okay. be it's, it's okay. $2. I thought it was like a federal tax. No, no, no. It's a, it's a tax okay. imposed by the Major League Baseball okay. people. But there are also teams that uh, barely get by. Tampa Bay had like a $60 million payroll. 
So the question is, what's the right payroll? What do you need to spend? And here's what's interesting. To get to the World Series? Yes. And okay. then, so you look at Houston, you say, what are they spending? It turns out their salary is $168 million. Now, to put it in context, the highest is Boston Red Sox is 229 So 168 is not the highest. It's healthy. It's not highest. Uh, so what do you think Washington's uh, is? No idea. Okay. Exactly $168 million. Really? They both are exactly the same. The odds against that are astronomical. What other teams do you know? I know the Yankees are over 200 but I mean... What about uh, the Mets? Uh, the Mets are short of uh, 168 I believe. But I, I wouldn't. I don't think we're going to quiz me about what everybody's spending. No, I'm just curious. I but, wouldn't quiz you. If you had prepped me at all about this subject, I wouldn't have even asked. But okay. It's, <laughs> but, I think it's natural to be interested. The point is, that what, the odds that they're exactly the same, they're exactly, that's the magic number. If you're a general manager, you wake up and say, here's what you should spend. If the answer is $168 million. And then the Yankees wasted all that money. The Yankees and, wasted a lot of money. And then Boston, really, whoa, oh, Boston. Oh, wow. You know, I saw something, the, the, funny you say it, the Wall Street Journal wrote an article that said that the Yankees spent $200 million a year for every year in the decade, 2010 to 2020, and came away with no World Series wins. A huge, in the, in the view of the world, of Wall Street Journal, a huge waste. Mm -hmm. uh, so there you go. The Mets are not, don't have that going against them, but uh, they just don't succeed. Um, okay, museum update there. Okay, just a little teeny museum update. Yeah. Uh, number one, fingers crossed yeah. uh, about the Getty Center. Uh, they're, they're calling the fire that's out there now the Getty Fire. Are you serious? Because it's that close. Wow. Um, so, uh, and we have been to the, the Getty Center. We have. Um, but if so, anybody can afford to do something about wow. it, it's the Getty people. You know, one of the great things about the Getty Center was the view yes. uh, from that building Wow, uh, out over those hills. So uh, Yeah, I mean, wow. the Getty Center was like the, well, it, it is and it isn't. You go out there and you say, this is not, you know, the frick. This is not a small museum. This is huge. It rivals the Metropolitan. Well, of course, it doesn't. No, it doesn't rival. It, I was just going to say, it doesn't rival the Metropolitan. But, it, but it's big. But it's huge. It's not big. Huge. It, it's, <laughs> all right. Moving right along. Yes. Um, then, uh, but the other thing that's interesting to me, also in California, um, because there was a section in the New York Times uh, listing all the, uh, well, kind of a lot of ads for museums and galleries yeah. about what's around and what's coming. And uh, one of the things noted was a, an exhibition of Assyrian relief panels at the Getty Villa. Now, the Getty Villa is ancient art, mm -hmm. and uh, it's out uh, in Malibu. We have not been there. It would be fun to go there. Okay. Anyway, love the Assyrian panels. You know, the Assyrians, they're the ones, the um, originators of the Lamassu. Yeah. And you love a Lamassu. Oh, sure. And, uh, Can't get enough. Yeah. Um, and the panels are fantastic. Yeah. I've spent uh, a fair amount of time uh, in actually... Um, the uh, museum in uh, London. The Taft? No, the, the museum. The British Museum. The British Museum. Okay. Yeah. Um, looking at uh, those panels. Yeah. And uh, my favorite is going to be there, is going to be out there. Yeah, these are all on loan from London. It's going to be out at the Getty Villa, and it's called The Banquet. Mm. Uh, Asher Nazapal's Banquet. Uh, no, I'm getting this wrong. Ashurbanipal. Um, and um, anyway, so I love it because it's a garden party. 
Ashurbanipal and his wife are out in the garden, snacking, lounging on chairs. There are musicians playing. There are servants waving, uh, you know, mm-hmm. um, palm branches to scare away the bugs or whatever. And uh, the, more food is being brought out. And there are fabulous decorations in the trees. What are the decorations? It's the head and skin of a recently defeated, defeated enemy. Right. All right. Talk about your garden party right. Uh, right. decorations. Assyrians. Great. Amazing reliefs. Kind of a brutal culture. Yes. All right. So uh, speaking uh, of... And... And what? There can't be anything beyond that. The what? Penn Museum. Yeah. University of Penn Museum. Yeah. Great collection. Yeah. Uh, just went through a big renovation. You know, they're famous for the Sumerian... Ec- uh, excavations of Leonard Woolley, Sir Leonard Woolley, and uh, you know all these marvelous uh, Sumerian artifacts. You know the Sumerians invented pretty much everything: history, um, the plow, the wheel, um, base sixty, and we still use base sixty today, right? I don't know what base sixty is. So. You do too. No, I don't. It's how we tell time. Okay. All right. Fine. A mathlete would know that. No. <laughs> Who are you and what have you done with my husband? Yeah. Um, anyway, so anyway, the new galleries opening up at Penn. Let's go. Okay. Um, so, uh, speaking of brutal, um, the uh, here's something you directed me to because this uh, caught your attention. I guess it fits with the Assyrians that uh, there is a there an event called the uh, Be Back Car Care event uh, in Doylestown. Be Back Car Care is exactly what it sounds like. It's an auto shop. You bring right. in, you have a car I think this care. is brilliant marketing. Well, here's the marketing. They uh, ran an event at Be Back Car Care where they took a car that was, I guess, an old, older car that was kind of beat up. They painted it as if it was a tribute vehicle to the Dallas Cowboys and Dallas Cowboy colors and logo. And then uh, this being Philadelphia Eagle Country, they set it up so that they would charge people $2.50 a hit to take a sledgehammer and hit the car. Uh, Sounds like fun. $10 for five hits. And... Um, they spent the afternoon uh, put, passing this hammer around and smashing up the car. And it's called a smashing good time. And all the money is raised for charity at Be Back Car Care. Uh, I'm afraid we've all missed it. This is historical. And I guess it tells you something what goes on in small towns for entertainment. Well, it sounds like fun. Does it? But the car only looks slightly dented up. Uh, so I do think, you think it was really satisfying? Uh, I this mean, is if you hit it really hard and it doesn't get that. There's a Somehow, series. This is this is what I don't understand. Yeah. You have people hitting the car with sledgehammers. Yeah. You know, I mean, I accidentally yeah. get up close to a picket fence. Yeah. And my car crumbles. Right. You know. And here you hit it with a sledgehammer. You can't even tell. Yeah. Uh, I don't get it. There's a point to that. Well, it just shows when you really want when you really want to do damage, you can't. In any event, uh, people paid money to do this. They paid money to hit a Dallas Cowboy car. Tells you something about the Philadelphia Eagle fans, right? So um, another thing caught my eye, uh, you know, combining uh, a couple of different interests. You know, one of the great things was when we were in New York. We were yeah. in New York um, partly because it's the time of year when I meet students mm-hmm. at the Met and uh, give them a tour. And uh, so usually we spend the night in New York and we get up at the crack and we go for a walk in Central Park when uh, people are allowed to let their dogs run free. And uh, it's really a fun time to be in Central Park. The time of year, it's beautiful. The air was crisp. It was a wonderful morning. And uh, so I noticed this article about uh, 
you know, some about Central Park. A lot of controversy lately because of the statuary in Central Park. It's all men. Yeah. Okay. And so there has been this effort, uh, somewhat controversial for a variety of reasons we won't go into today, um, you know, trying to come up with ideas of women yeah. uh, statues to have in the park. And uh, here was an article about uh, some other people who will be um, commemorated with a monument uh, in Central Park. And that will be uh, members of the Lyons family. Okay, the Lyons were Seneca Village property owners, educators, and dedicated abolitionists running a boarding house for black sailors that doubled as a stop on the Underground Railroad. Mm -hmm. And so then you, you're wondering, what is Seneca Village? Seneca Village was an area of about five acres, um, a mostly black community with black property owners mm -hmm. in Central Park, roughly between it, it, where where Central Park is now. And it would have been roughly between uh, what would be 8th Avenue and 7th Avenue, uh, between like 82nd and 89th uh -huh. Street, okay? And it was founded around, uh, property began to be sold to blacks um, around 1825. Uh -huh. And, you know, it flourishes over the next few years. It will have three churches, a school, several cemeteries. They will live side by side with Irish immigrants who are having as much uh, sort of discrimination um, and, you know, issues uh, as almost the blacks during this period. Um, so there was similar, you know, sense of being um, kind of outcasts in the city. And, uh, but then the proposal for Central Park comes along. And, uh, of course, the land is, what do you call that? Condemned. Legally? Condemned. Condemned. Yeah. Uh, and the property owners, uh, the black property owners, uh, do get compensation. Oh, yeah, that's what condemnation okay. is. Yeah. Um, but uh, that's the end of Seneca Village. But there are still, you know, there's still remnants there. There are occasionally kind of excavations looking for burial sites, et cetera. Yeah, you know, it's, so, it's funny. The condemnation process is it's kind of interesting. We saw something about Lincoln Center, you may remember, a few months ago. And how it is they created Lincoln Center, which is this huge art center, of course, right, on the west right. side of Manhattan. Yeah. And what you don't realize until, unless you saw the documentary that we saw, is that it was a huge neighborhood, huge neighborhood with tons of people living there. And many people displaced. Right. And so somebody wakes up one morning and says, you know something, we're going to use that for, uh, for this. We're going to use that to, to put Lincoln Center. And it wasn't a prosperous community, but it was a decent community. And all these people, you know, were talking about suddenly they had to leave. Uh, right. And, and was, they're not getting compensation, right? Well, the landlords got compensation. The landlords do, but, 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 not, the, but you not, have all the these... tenants, not the tenants. And they said uh, goodbye. Yeah. Uh, that's how you build uh, great things like Central Park. That's how you build great things like uh, Lincoln Center. Uh, and but you have to have an appetite for that kind of thing. Uh, it, there's a there's a backside of that story. Um, but in any case, yeah. I'm always interested in more sculpture. Yeah, I'm. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, not as attuned to that as you are. But uh, well, it's funny. You walk through Central Park, and it's not like each statue really resonates with you. They were products of their time, so I think it is um, interesting to open. Yeah, I'm not. It up I to... don't feel strongly one way or another. I don't. I actually walk through Central Park without noticing the statues. I just wanted you to realize there are people like that, uh, and you're married to one of them. So uh, you could tell me 
that you know the nineteen twenty four uh, you know Philadelphia Athletics or uh, memorialized in Central Park, and I'd say, okay, if you say so. Um, but whatever, I know it matters to a lot of people. The um, oh, okay, so we had. I don't, I'm not saying it matters. Well, I think it does matter. Uh, I'm not saying it well, doesn't I think maybe it, it does matter to some people. I'm talking about it. Interesting to me, you walk down, you look at a statue. Yeah. The name means nothing. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, I mean, in some ways, the statue's there to keep that name alive and keep it meaningful. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's easily done now. We can just look it up on our phone. All right. But it's also interesting to me that 100 years ago, this was a popular, well-known name, celebrity person yeah. that uh, everybody would have said, oh, yeah, of course there's well, a Well, you know, I tell you, just to finish that point, all right? So I don't trust that. To me, for example, if you're going over a bridge and you say it's the Hugh Carey Bridge, if someone says to me, well, gee, Hugh Carey, that was a big celebrity. No, he was the governor. They named it after the governor. Okay, politicians name things after other politicians. I mean, there is... Do I think Hugh Carey is a tremendously important person? I don't. So there, do I trust the fact that when I see a name uh, on a bridge or in a statue to, uh, that, in fact, that's a significant person? Well, I don't. Well, it's a little bit different, yeah. a statue and a bridge. Okay? I don't know. Somebody is commemorating a civic monument. Yeah. Um, putting a name on it is different from a portrait of somebody that... Uh, okay. I, I, I'm more skeptical than you are, okay? I don't, uh, I don't accept that uh, face value. Uh, all right, so we have three obituaries. Um, the first is something we both uh, kind of got onto, which was uh, this fellow we never heard of named Paul Pollock. Um, and here's what's interesting about him. Um, it's more what he did than anything else. What he did was he decided that he wanted to do something that would alleviate or at least partially alleviate uh, poverty in some of the, the uh, poorest parts of the world. And his solution, his mind, uh, was that uh, it had to be based on free market. In other words, he said that the charitable model just doesn't work. Giving people money just doesn't work. What works is to set up uh, an economy, if you will. And let me give you an example. It's a better, there's no better way to illustrate than what he did. So, for example, he went to Somalia. And he realized that people would benefit quite a bit by having uh, transportation, um, by being able to move things around. And he devised, or designed, if you will, a better donkey cart using parts from junked automobiles. And what that did was it created economy in the sense that it he designed it in such a way that local blacksmiths could actually build the, the, the donkey cart, that folks could buy the donkey cart for a reasonable amount of money, then charge money to others for carting things because it was an economy for them to have something carted at them and save right. them Water, money and time. firewood, right. etc. But the key is yeah. that he charged the people. The people paid for the carts. Well, that no, is, that, that's key to his philosophy. That's key to his philosophy, but it was also key. Is, it's just the idea that all the different parts of the economy working together. He added value right. in a right. sense that you have people specializing. You have people specializing in building donkey carts that, you know, had no really aptitude to do that to begin with. And then you have people of ways of using the donkey carts in a profitable way and people who have a way of benefiting from the donkey carts in a way that's worth their while to pay for it. Uh, and he did the same thing with designs for uh, water pumps, is called foot-powered water pumps and the like, and a machine that sort of generated chlorine that you could use to purify water and all that sort of thing, but all along the same model, that it was something that can be built there, 
something that can be sold there, something a product that, that then could be sold in turn. Uh, and uh, it's kind of genius when you think about it. And it's really, uh, it's really uh, capitalism, really on a very small scale. And he's betting on the notion that uh, these forces of production are going to be used uh, most economically if he sets it up that way. As you put it, people are paying for things. You're not relying on uh, people's ill emotionary aptitude, but just the idea that they're doing it all in their own self-interest. So I thought that was pretty ingenious. Yeah. So Paul Pollack. Yeah. Uh, hats off to him. And uh, I read an interesting uh, obituary about Hildegard Backert. Mm -hmm. And uh, she died at the age of 98. Mm. And uh, she was actually born in Germany, mm -hmm. and she ends up in the U.S., uh, you know, for the, she was Jewish, uh, and uh, she uh, flees to the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, just as things are heating up over there. Her parents follow after Kristallnacht, um, and uh, then uh, she um, actually works very hard, goes to school, gets a scholarship to Oberlin, but still can't afford to go to Oberlin. Uh, so she ends up going to classes at Hunter, free classes at Hunter in New York City at night. Um, meanwhile, she's working as a secretary. She's working in a gallery, somehow gets a job in a gallery, meets uh, a man named Otto Kallir, and uh, who uh, uh, wants to open a, an art gallery. And uh, she comes to work for him uh, on the promise that she will teach him English. Mm -hmm. And uh, he founds that gallery, the Gallery Saint-Étienne, in 1939. And it's really the first major gallery to promote Austrian and German expressionists. And they really bring uh, Gustav Klimt, Egon Schiller, uh, Paula Modus and Becker, Oscar Kokoschka, Katja uh, Kolwitz, uh, and others uh, really put them on the map uh, for the um, sort of New York market. And she says, uh, so she says that, um, you know, at the beginning, in the 50s, they had Egon Schiele prints, not prints, uh, drawings mm -hmm. for like $10. Mm. Uh, you know, recently an Egon Schiele drawing sold for $2.2 million. Um, so she works her way out from secretary to co-director. And uh, she never actually retired. She only moved to Vermont full time at a certain point. Uh, she, they also um, were... Um, uh, didn't actually discover Grandma Moses, but uh, early on represented her and got the rights to her work. You know, the primitive sort of Grandma Moses type yeah, sure. pictures? Yeah. Okay, that became uh, her whole, she flourished in the 50s. She was discovered by, uh, in upstate New York, by a guy who was like in the water engineering, the state water engineering department mm -hmm. or something. Most galleries were not interested. Um, uh, Backert and uh, Clear saw something in her. They get the rights, and uh, she, she ends up getting all kinds of deals with greeting card companies, uh, you know, shows, reproductions, etc. And uh, as she put it, 
they used Grandma Moses to kind of support to um, Sheila and the other, uh, you know, the gallery as a whole, um, you know, for the more uh, mm -hmm. sort of sophisticated works or the or the complicated, you know. Oh, uh, whatever. I mean, I mean, this was, you know, a whole, uh, she said she learned more from Grandma Moses about the intrinsic value of art than she learned well, from Well, Grandma Moses else. considered outsider art or not? Um, you know, I couldn't really say. It doesn't seem so, I, I, you know, I would say folk art. I don't know about outsider. Okay. Um, I mean, it's not my phrase. I mean, I just hear it once in a while. Okay. Um, but uh, I think the other thing she said about Grandma Moses was her work seems wonderfully sentimental and nostalgic. Right. Right. And uh, she said uh, Grandma Moses was not like that at all. Mm. Um, but uh, anyway, so she... Uh, never stops working. Okay, she has a an apartment on the Upper West Side, uh, still with the furniture her parents managed mm -hmm. to bring over from Germany, etc. And uh, she says, uh, you know, I I couldn't stop working. I was too into it. I work more now in my old age than I ever did. He, she said, Clear thought we should have some time to ourselves. She said he was the boss. He could say that. Now that I'm the boss. I don't take time off. All right. Good. Um, all right. So we close. Uh, well, a couple of things that are related, but kind of closing. Uh, Lottie Renninger is the last obituary. And, and this is, I just, I thought this was interesting. And I think I've seen something like this, but I can't be sure. Um, and the, uh, it, what it says in the Times in the headline, even before Disney, she's told fanciful stories and animated films with her hand cut paper silhouettes. The woman who basically just that hand cut silhouettes, and uh, they would be uh, used to make animated films. Her the biggest classic being the 1926 silent film, The Adventures of Prince Ahmed. Uh, and what they did was uh, she would take uh, this was the process. The figures in the backgrounds are laid out on a glass table. A strong light from underneath makes the wire, their wire hinges to give subtle movements, makes the wire hinges disappear and throws up the black figures in relief. And then a camera is used to take pictures. And then they take successive pictures after you move the limbs of the various characters a little bit every time. And you take another picture and you take a zillion pictures and you have all these cells and you put them together and it's Sounds animated. strangely like animation. It's animation. It is animation. It's okay. totally animation. And apparently it was haunting animation. Um... Her and, figures, I'm looking at the picture. Her figures yeah. remind me uh, a lot of the contemporary artist, Kara Walker. I don't okay. know if you're fam of, of familiar. Of course, the answer is no, okay. but uh, I don't doubt you for a moment. So I wonder if there's any kind of connection there. Well, all I know is they asked A.O. Scott, the movie reviewer for the Times, about it, and he said he praised Renager's blend of whimsy and spookiness, her dreamy images that tap right into the collective unconscious that suggests an antidote to Disney. And I'm saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Antidote to Disney. And maybe, you know, maybe what he's talking about is the recent Disney or something like that, but we had occasion to talk about something else because it is Halloween, and we found ourselves, or at least I started talking about The Legend of Sleepy Hollow because there was an, several articles about Washington Irving and what that story was and how it resonated and what the real point of it was. And uh, and there was reference every once in a while to popular culture, namely there's been a television series based on The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and a movie with Johnny Depp a couple of years ago. And I'm saying to myself, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's, there's the seminal Legend of Sleepy Hollow 
is the Disney cartoon, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, which we both saw when we were impressionable, eight years old, nine years old, which is one of the most striking and memorable cartoons I've seen in my entire life. And it turns out it was, re was released as The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad in 1949, before our time, but then cut up to be part of the wonderful world of Disney when we saw it when we were young, just short of the age of 10. And I will just say, just lay it out there for those of you with young children, even not. If you really want to get into The Legend of Sleepy Hollow at the time of Halloween, there is only one thing to see, and that is the Disney cartoon narrated and voiced by Bing Crosby. It is fantastic. It's right up there with Renninger's silhouettes in terms of creating a memorable image and a very striking story. Would you not agree with that? Uh, yeah, I think it's a little scary. It's terribly scary. It's okay, a, even you now I recommend it to, to everybody with tiny tots. Well, not tiny tots, but it is something. Maybe to adults. It is maybe, not a, maybe it's worth a second look. It's not a truly saccharine thing. It is a striking use of animation, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, The uh, Adventures of uh, Ichabod. Uh, okay. That's all we've got. Halloween coming up. Everybody enjoy happy a happy Halloween. Halloween. Getting your costume ready? <laughs> I don't have much time, uh, but now that you put it that way, I certainly will. All right, all right. So this is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. Uh With Tamsin and Dan Read the Paper. We'll see you again next week.